kind of stepped into this world of jazz music and civil rights history coming from a background where I had just grown up pretty ignorant of all of these stories. I was raised in Anniston, Alabama, which is most famous for a civil rights era of incidents of violence where a white mob bombed a Freedom Rider bus. And that was a story that I didn't hear until much later in my life. It was something that I was kind of not exposed to until I was much older. And so getting to learn the history of the place that I grew up in and have really grown to care about through music as something that's been a very intensely personal journey for me mm -hmm. as I use music to really examine why the world looks the way that it does around me. That was Chloe Smith. She wrote a Yale University master's thesis about jazz musicians in Birmingham, Alabama during the civil rights era. In the spring of 2021, she sat down with me in my office at Samford University to talk about her research. This was during the COVID pandemic, so we wore masks and kept the window open. You'll hear birds outside the window, and you'll also hear students coming and going and rehearsing music in the building. I want you to know before you listen further that Chloe and I talked about some hard topics, including Birmingham's history of racial trauma. Please be careful if you think this could be triggering for you. I do want to recommend to you the best book I've read on racialized trauma. It's My Grandmother's Hands, Racialized Trauma and the Pathway to Mending Our Hearts and Bodies by Resma Menachem. This is not just a book that you read. It's a book that you do. It's packed with practices we can all adopt as we work towards a society that is more just and more whole. Menachem also has a podcast and a website, www.resma.com. That's R-E-S-M-A-A dot com. I hope you'll listen to what he has to say. Menachem points out that music, especially singing, can be healing. This is one of the themes of Here in Alabama. But in what you're about to hear, Chloe tells some stories of deep trauma before she talks about hope. We do get to hope. As Menachem says, resilience is built into the cells of our bodies. Like trauma, resilience can ripple outward, changing the lives of people, families, neighborhoods, and communities in positive ways. Also like trauma, resilience can be passed down from generation to generation. Sometimes, Music is how we pass down that resilience. Stick with me and Chloe to hear how. I'm Beth McGinnis. This is Here in Alabama. And here's Chloe Smith. And I actually remember I have a memory of the first time I encountered the story of the 16th Street Church bombing. I was taking a dual enrollment English class at Gadsden State Community College in high school. And we read the Langston Hughes poem about the four little girls who died in the bombing. And that was the first encounter I had with this story. And it stuck with me. And especially in college, getting to visit the Civil Rights Institute several times and also getting to take classes on that period of history, especially local history in Birmingham. Mm -hmm. It was a moment that I realized the 16th Street Church bombing was a moment that really stuck out to me as something that was just so tragic and so powerful also as a starting off point for art. Mm -hmm. And so that poem being the first thing that I encountered, that was the first impression I had of this event. 
And as I was looking at music to research for my master's thesis, I found all of this, these songs that were written about that moment. Mm -hmm. And I think it introduced this really um, powerful lens through which to talk about some other issues. First, a little about Chloe's background. So I grew up in Anniston, Alabama, and I started classical violin at the age of 10. And for most of my young adult life, I was trained in classical violin. I participated in a youth orchestra. And one of the first exposures that I had to music that wasn't my normal classical violin repertoire was actually my youth orchestra conductor wanted to have a bluegrass band. And in that band, we ended up playing, there were a couple of songs off of the album by Pete Seeger, or it's a Bruce Springsteen's Pete Seeger session, where we played a lot of music that was protest anthems during the civil rights movement, inspired by and like covers of Black's religious music. And so it was things like, we shall overcome, eyes on the prize. And there was a bunch of music in this tradition I had never been exposed to. And so that was kind of my first exposure in music that wasn't my normal repertoire as a classical violinist. And then I got to college, I went to Stanford University for undergrad. I studied violin performance for the first two years and then added a history major by my junior year. While I was at Sanford, I was studying classical music and through my history degree in my junior year, I became very interested in the history of the South and the civil rights movement. I had a civil rights movement seminar that focused on Birmingham and um, local the, the local movement here during the civil rights movement. And so I realized then that a lot of my historical interests had to do with my musical interests as well. So the first big research project I did for my history major was about protest music and black religious music during the civil rights movement in Birmingham. And so I kind of opened this window through the history door into a world of music that I was pretty estranged from as a violinist. My senior year, I was interested in doing a project for a musicology class on the jazz musician Sun Ra, who was from Birmingham. And I just realized that looking at music in Birmingham was a lens and a path into conversations I wanted to have about Birmingham history in a way that was still exciting to me and fun to talk about. When I was finishing at Sanford, I knew I had these interests in the civil rights movement and in especially protest music and black religious music. And I had this um, project in jazz. And so I applied to master's programs and I ended up doing a one-year master's program at Yale University where I wrote a thesis, which we're gonna talk about today, about Birmingham and jazz musicians in the public education system that were um, pretty influential in the popular music scene in the 20th century and placing them within broader narratives of racial violence and injustice in Birmingham and their responses to it. 2021 marks Birmingham's 150th anniversary. Racial violence pervades that whole history. Birmingham as a site where no enslaved Black people ever lived, it sets up this dynamic in the city where if the Black population in Birmingham was only ever free, they were only ever perceived as a threat to from white people that lived here as well. Because it had such a start as an industrial town with the steel and iron industry here, a lot of these people were working alongside each other, and the white people in Birmingham at the time were really desperate for control. And so that set up this very harsh system of segregation and of laws that punished Black people for the most minor infractions. And so while the Black community in Birmingham was never enslaved, 
there was this dynamic where they could be arrested and put in prison and made to participate in convict labor for things like um, vagrancy or for gambling, whereas those punishments were way harsher for Black people in Birmingham than they were for the white community. And so it sets up Birmingham as this very intensified example of segregation. And that was actually something that Martin Luther King Jr. said multiple times, that Birmingham was the most segregated city in the South. And so using Birmingham as a case study I really think is a powerful like microcosm of the larger problems of the trauma inflicted on Black people by the Middle Passage, by slavery, and the struggles after Reconstruction and during segregation. And so I think Birmingham as an example is just so intense because of the fear from white people about Black people in Birmingham that they just felt the need for power. And so that set up the situation that we encounter in 1963. Using um, the history of racial violence in Birmingham as this like backdrop to 1963, I think kind of primes the reader to understand that the bombing at 16th Street Baptist Church is not an isolated, unexpected incident. There's a neighborhood in North Birmingham called Dynamite Hill, where during, it was after World War II mostly, there were about 50 bombings in the north part of Birmingham. It was about zoning for black and white neighborhoods. It was about housing integration. And so Birmingham already has this reputation. They've been nicknamed Bombingham for a while. There's this reputation of bombs as a tool for white people to try to inflict power and um, control over black people in the city. Mm -hmm. And so seeing 1963 in that context, along with the history of just um, vigilante justice, quote unquote, for um, a bunch of lynchings earlier in the century, There's this very prominent theme throughout Birmingham's history where white citizens feel the need to control by taking justice and taking issues into their own hands and inflicting violence on the black community in very drastic ways. And the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing is kind of notorious because of the victims and because of it being a church itself. There's this there's an extra layer of tragedy to it because it was children who died. It was a moment that really shocked the world. But to somebody, if you're looking at Birmingham's history through a longer lens, it's not so much of a shock as it is kind of a boiling over and a culmination. Four kinds of laws systematized Birmingham's racial violence. I came across this article by Carl Harris, he's a historian, and he outlined these four different types of laws. And so the first one is the regulation of saloons. And there was this quote, he says, the menace of the Negro saloon. It's seen as a site of debauchery. And it's a place where Black people had these communities where that was a point of contention for the white community. They want to stifle those spots. So there was really strict regulations there. There were vagrancy laws where Black people out on the streets, maybe after a certain time, were arrested and charged exorbitant amounts for just loafing about, quote unquote. There was also this, that is a funnel into the convict labor system. And there's actually, in the 13th Amendment, when slavery is ended, there's this provision that unless as a punishment for a crime, there's this system of... I would believe and would strongly say slavery within the prison system where black people are unfairly targeted and forced to work for no to very little money after being caught for a crime that a white person wouldn't have been 
arrested for. And this was something in the early history of Birmingham especially, but even continues today, that is a point of control and a point of power that white people uh, extended over the black community. And the final type of law was this um, county fee system where petty charges and gambling were met with really exorbitant fines definitely more so against the black community than against any white offenders. So in these four different arenas, we have just ways where the law works to work against the black community in Birmingham, making it impossible for them to really invest financially, for um, them to invest in family, because if all of these people are getting fined and arrested for things that the white people in the community aren't, it just sets up this inequality that has repercussions through generations. Mm -hmm. When you write a thesis or a dissertation, one of the things you think about is methodology. Methodology just means how you think about your topic. Chloe found a useful methodology in the work of Harvard musicologist Ingrid Monson and going back to the French philosopher Michel Foucault. So I encountered this book, Freedom Sounds, by Ingrid Monson when my first semester in my master's program. She takes this concept, it's kind of borrowed from Foucault, it's about a constellation of discourses that all act in parallel with each other and in tandem with each other, acting, the same conversations can be had on many different levels and in many different spheres. Mm -hmm. And so she takes this concept and applies it to um, the civil rights movement era, especially with jazz musicians. And there's also some elements of the Cold War coming in here as well. There's these conversations that happen on these two different spheres about questions of like what it means to be a black musician, what it means to be a black person during this time. And so I was really interested in how she drew these two narratives together, because that was something to me that was so interesting about this history and using music as a lens is that in a lot of ways, music acts as this intensified field for broader conversations about civil rights. And so I think a really good example of that that pops up in my thesis is the attack on Nat King Cole, mm -hmm. where he comes into the Birmingham Municipal Auditorium in 1956 to perform a concert for a segregated all-white audience. And he is attacked brutally while on stage by members of the White Citizens Council, and at the end of the attack, and when he comes back out on stage after being seen by a doctor, he's like, I can't continue this show. I don't know what you want from me. Like, I was here to entertain you, and this happened. And so there's this backlash against Nat King Cole after this incident, actually. After the attack on Nat King Cole, there was this editorial in the New York Amsterdam News where the editorial writer basically says Nat King Cole got what he deserved for participating in this system where he stood in front of an all-white audience and agreed to play, even in this context after Brown versus Board of Education has passed, where segregation is no longer legal in the United States and he's still participating. And so there's these conversations about integration versus separatism like as a black musician, where does his responsibility lie in performing his craft? kind of feed into bigger conversations about how Black people should act in an America that's so turned against them in seg during segregation in the Jim Crow era. Using Ingrid Monson's parallel discourses, I feel like was a really powerful tool for me to be able to think about not only the music and the jazz musicians and how they are acting during this period and what they believe during this period, 
but how they operate within broader conversations about Black trauma in the United States and about integration versus separatist discourses. I try to outline these two camps within Black intellectual discourse. The first big examples that I start with in each tradition in the integrationist tradition, where these thinkers want to desegregate and integrate into white society, it starts in the days before emancipation during the Civil War with Frederick Douglass. And on the opposite camp, we have one of his peers, Martin Delany, who is kind of this forgotten father of Black nationalism. There's a surge of remembrance of him in the 60s, in the 1960s. They were both working in this time period where Black people are slaves and emancipation happens and you have to figure out the response. Like, what are you fighting for for the Black community? Do you want to be equal to the white people around you? Do you want to, or take this pan-Africanist route where all the black people in the United States might go found a free nation in Africa? And so that's kind of the start of this tension. And I also want to just be very clear that these are not clearly defined like black and white lines among black intellectual thinkers. There's crisscross between them. The same thinkers will go back and forth between, for example, W.E.B. Du Bois, was an integrationist for most of his life. He had this very intense optimism about the ability of Black Americans to gain equality, especially in the period as Reconstruction is happening right after the Civil War. But over time, he gets disillusioned with the idea because it's just taking too long. And so he spends the last part of his life in Ghana and just ends up leaving the United States. And so there's these very blurry lines between the two. So the tradition of integrationist thinking in the Black and White tradition. We start with Frederick Douglass. One of the biggest themes in his writing, he has a newspaper called The North Star in Rochester, New York. And one of the biggest themes that's easy to see from his writing is about Christian unity. He believes that it is in Christianity and in this sense of Christian brotherhood that Black and white people will gain equality because he says, because of my religion, because of this idea of Christian unity, this is what's right, and he has faith that it will happen. And the same thing is can kind of be said of W.B. Du Bois. He's um, a descendant of enslaved people who he went to Harvard, and he has this very strong affinity for, or he has a strong belief in Christian brotherhood as well, and the ideals of the American Republic. He says, in our nation's founding, all men are created equal. Like, this is an ideal that I'm sure we believe. And then he's one of the ones who gets disillusioned as time goes on, as his optimism fades, as his sense of urgency fades, as the response is not met. The final person that I write about that kind of takes up this mantle is Martin Luther King Jr., who is probably the most famous civil rights activist. And he takes this philosophy from Paul Tillich, who is a theologian, where he says that separation or segregation is sin. He says that for God's people to be separated from each other is a moral travesty. And so he takes this Christian unity, Christian brotherhood thread that's been pulled from the Civil, from the Civil War all the way through this tradition to say that like Christianity is the tool to make all of us equal because this is how it should be. It is morally wrong that we're separated. 
there's also um, this theme of urgency that we've seen with W.E.B. Du Bois. He has this sense of urgency. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. And then eventually, as it's not met, he kind of gives up and becomes a separatist, goes to Africa. But with Martin Luther King, you still see that urgency in the fight for integration, especially in the letter from a Birmingham jail that he writes while he's here where he's kind of admonishing white moderates in the city who have been telling him, just wait, just calm down. You don't have to do it. You don't have to protest like this. And his response is, those of you who are moderate and those of you who tell me to wait, you're worse than the most violent racists because it's this sense of urgency to get to the moral good, which is integration. That's kind of the thesis of this tradition. And then on the other hand, you have the Black separatist tradition that starts back with Martin Delany in the Civil War era. Can I interrupt you before you move to that? Yes, please. With Martin Luther King, with the letter from the Birmingham jail, you also see that that Christian ethic showing up there. He's calling on mm-hmm. on white pastors. Yes, absolutely. To respond, right? Mm-hmm. You mentioned Paul Tillich, but also mentioned King reading Reinhold Niebuhr, this idea that there's a permeation of sin into every aspect of society that causes injustice, which was influential in his, in King's thought. Totally, yeah. And I do think there's something like powerful to be said about the use of churches and pastors and their role in the civil rights movement. I think that's something that in this integrationist tradition, um, Christianity and this like moral push towards integration has been so strong that it's kind of no surprise to me that Martin Luther King, as a pastor of a church, as somebody who went to seminary, is a figurehead in this movement. And not only that, but really the people on the ground in this movement are organizing in churches. There's like the mass meetings where everybody sings and organizes for the protest that's coming the following day. And I think that's something that's really strong about this movement, and especially when it comes to the music. A lot of the music that they sing turns into really powerful protest anthems. And so, yeah, I think that's a thread that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Now you're going to tell me about the separatists. Right. So the opposing thread, again, it just gets messy because all of these people are working towards the same goal, which is to, I think it's put the most succinctly to me in this conversation. There's a book that I read by James Cone. It's called Martin and Malcolm in America, A Dream or a Nightmare. And he sets up this problem with the W.E.B. Du Bois question, what after all am I? Am I an American or am I a Negro? Can I be both? And at the end of the day, all of these thinkers are just trying to answer that question and they come at it from different points of view. So the integrationist answer to that question is, why of course we can be both. We can be both black, we can be American and we're gonna fight for that reality. And the separatists say, there's no value in being an American. There is no value in participating in a system that has oppressed our people for hundreds of years. There's some themes that kind of pop up throughout this thread as well, which are a push towards practical education and also a push towards finding community, even maybe back in Africa. Whereas 
the integrationists have this answer to the question, can I be an American, can I be black at the same time? The separatists say a resounding no. There is a push towards emigration to Africa, and there's also a push towards practical black education to really um, bolster the black communities in the United States and make them self-sufficient outside of systems of white oppression. And so the kind of the father of this movement, who is retroactively titled that from the 1960s, is Martin Delany. He worked alongside Frederick Douglass. They worked on the, um, a newspaper together. One of the themes that I've picked out from his writing is actually a theme from his newspaper called The Mystery from the 1840s, where he says, and Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. There is this theme of African knowledge and African um, tradition and history that he believes that they should fit themselves into. His Pan-Africanist dream, though, kind of failed. He um, ended up moving to Canada for the last part of his life. I think this quote from him just like really kind of hits home what he's talking about. He's not in favor of caste nor separation of the brotherhood of mankind, and he shall never be reconciled living among white people, subservient it to their will. So in this vein, there's this theme of better away from white people at all than um, participating in a society that they are at, treated as lesser. Mm. And so the next person to pick up this mantle is Booker T. Washington, who's probably most famous for um, his role at the Tuskegee Normal and Industrial Institute. Booker T. Washington pushed for a practical education that we might think of as trade school in order to make the uh, Black community as self-sufficient as possible. Oh, and Booker T. Washington also was not thought of as a Pan-Africanist during his lifetime, but some recent scholarship by Andrew Zimmerman and Tyreen Wright kind of pushed this narrative that he was actually more of a Pan-Africanist than we might think. He was involved in the Congo and South Africa in fights for equality and in securing nationhood for Liberia, which is the Black separatist dream, you know? And so this separatist tradition is taken up by Malcolm X in, during the civil rights movement. He believed firmly that Black people were better off without a system of white oppression um, outside of that system. And integration would result in, quote, the disintegration of both races and the Negro is better off by himself so he can develop his character and his culture in accord with his own nature. And so here there's also a distinct lack of any idea of Christian unity. It's kind of a secular movement in a lot of ways. Yeah, the biggest um, focuses here are on a practical education and on a potential move back to Africa. methodology, how she thinks about her thesis topic, has to do with concurrent streams of black intellectual discourse during the civil rights era. The water metaphor is apropos here. We think of a river as consisting of one big stream of water. I learned recently, though, that a river is made up of many different streams flowing together, simultaneously inseparable and distinct forming a complex ecosystem. Chloe filtered out two streams in black intellectual discourse, an integrationist stream and a separatist stream. Sometimes, 
the streams are musical. I want to pivot on that to turn to music, to think about music. I want to read a quote here. Highlighting music intensifies these discourses because of the special place of Black music in the fearful imaginations of the white opposers to integration. Mm -hmm. Something about Black music and its performers stirred violence and hate from white people. What was that? That quote I read was from Chloe's thesis. It's important enough to repeat. Chloe found that because of the special place of black music in the fearful imaginations of the white opposers to integration, something about black music and its performers stirred violence and hate from white people. I wanted to know about that, and Chloe told me. You can hear what she said in the next episode. The music you heard in this episode is by two Birmingham-based composers, Joshua David and Blake Mitchell. You can hear more on their websites, IamJoshuaDavid.com and BlakeRMitchellMusic.com. They're linked off my website, HereInAlabama.com. That's H-E-A-R-InAlabama.com. You also heard two prison songs from the John and Ruby Lomax 1939 Southern States recording trip. That whole collection of songs is on the Library of Congress website, loc.gov. And you heard Wade the Water by the Crossroads Group, featured in Season 1 of Here in Alabama. Listen to that season if you haven't already. I'm Beth McGinnis, and this is Here in Alabama. <laughs>